Center podcast listeners. Today, I'll be offering a short teaching, uh, which is an abbreviated version of the uh, of the teaching and discussion and interaction we had uh, this last Easter Sunday. The teaching takes place over the arc of four movements, which build on one another, and um, and in in service culminated in communion. So uh, we'll begin with movement one, and we'll begin by reading John, a portion of John chapter 19. Here's John uh, 19 in part. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him, and the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on the head, his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came to him, saying, Hail, King of the Judeans, and struck him with their hand. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law he ought to die, because he has made himself the Son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and the authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement in Aramaic, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your king. They cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to be crucified. That's John chapter 19, and we'll be uh, indirectly relying on that text as a foundation for uh, the teaching uh, for this episode, um, John chapter 19 is the introduction to the first movement um, as we think through um, and hopefully think in fresh ways and meaningful ways about about the resurrection. Uh, the first movement is death and the return to death as something unnatural. The first movement is death and The need to return to death is something unnatural. Personally, individually, the the rhythm or cycle of life and death is something from which 
um, it seems our species wants to be alienated. We would prefer, um, if possible, to distance ourselves from the unhappy and inescapable cycle of life followed by death. But of course, we don't experience any relief from this cycle of life to death. And in truth, age and health um, make no difference. Our life, the first um, exemplar of diminishing returns, exists through a body that is struggling to hold itself together, uh, but finally it cannot. Death interrupts life in the middle, whether you are young or old, whether you are healthy or sick. Um, death is something that is as familiar to the human experience as anything else one might want to name. But it's, it must be, um, for all, all sorts of reasons, one of the most unusual parts of our lived experience. And I think that we need to spend time um, as a community, but also as individuals, thinking through why it is that this, what is supposed to be this expected feature of the human experience is something that is, um, is something that causes um, such anxiety. And when not anxiety, um, something that we deal with in such a way that um, seems to imply um, this natural part of life, this, this natural thing is something that is very ill-fitting for us. Um, is death across um, culture, across place and time, is death something that we as a species experience as ill-fitting, as finally and ultimately undesirable, as alien in a way to what it is to be human? Um, has, have any of you experienced, um, um, or observed the attempts made by, um, artists and philosophers and intellectuals and religious people, the attempts to minimize death, nor the attempts to normalize death. Have any of you experienced that as, in, as ultimately not only unhelpful, but, but strange and, 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 and futile. If any of that resonates with you, if, if those things strike you as, um, you know, if, if they strike a nerve in some way, then it may be that you are positioned at this moment in your life um, to reimagine death as something that is ultimately unnatural, something we've been convinced um, to see as a part of things to try to reconcile ourselves to, but something that arguably we should not reconcile ourselves to. Um, worth noting that um, there is a tremendous lecture, some of the resources for um, the teaching today uh, come from some, some of the texts of John Dominique Crossan um, and all of the insight that he offers on who Christ is and the nature of the crucifixion in the first century. Um, but additionally, much of the material today relies on a, a tremendous lecture, which I recommend it's two parts. I recommend you listening to it in its entirety. 
a tremendous lecture by David Bentley Hart, where he deals with um, sacrifice um, and the crucifixion and the resurrection. And so uh, there's certainly large pieces of this teaching that are owed to both of those uh, both of those individuals also, and, and I, I recommend pursuing the, the original source material material yourselves. Also, um, there will be at least one reading, which I've offered um, before, at least um, the, I've, I've read from her text before, Mary Rackhow's um, fascinating book um, that, that attempts to reimagine, um, reimagine much of the Bible. Uh, while remaining true to its literary quality. And that, that chapter from Rakow's book, um, This Is Why We Came, is Merry Loving Kindness. So a little bit of sourcing there um, as we're just getting into this. So Heidegger, Heidegger says that we are being toward death, being toward death. Hart, in referencing Heidegger, says that Every death, and, and maybe quoting somebody else for that matter, says that every death is a murder. We are being toward death, and every death is a murder. In, in other words, part of living, and arguably one of the most important parts of living, is making meaning of your sooner-than-you-think, earlier-than-you-like death. Um, we are being toward death. We are beings that are that are in this ongoing position, the unfortunate position of having to work out what death is and why why we experience it and how we can make meaning out of it if we can make meaning out of it at all. Um, more powerful, though, is this this statement that every death is a murder. And these strange cultural maneuvers we make to appease um, our minds and to distance ourselves from the, the brutality of death. Um, think about the myths that we tell ourselves concerning death. You know, it's the, it's the um, grandparent or great-grandparent at 90 years old, and, and we say something like... Um, to comfort ourselves, we say something like, well, she, so glad she had a, a long life. So glad he lived a full life. He was ready. These kinds of statements. We know that, we know that these things are not true. We know that, um, we know that the elderly among us want to live exactly as much as the young among us, the 25-year-old wants to live and the 90-year-old wants to live. Of course, the, the exceptions um, actually prove the point. The elderly person who, because of um, disease and aging, is growing weary of life in that state, isn't, isn't celebrating death. That person is yet another testament to the strangeness of death and all of, all of its cohorts, all of its associates. Um, if one is healthy, and I mean, even if we want to explore this even further, this is why um, when we think about something like suicide, um, it's so um, 
disturbing and off-putting to us, we recognize fundamentally that we should be uh, rejecting death and that even someone who wants to die, we understand that that want is, that desire is um, misaligned, is um, there's there's something happening within that person that is causing um, an unhealthy desire. We should see every death as a murder. And we should see it as what it is, which is something that is consistent um, and seemingly inescapable in our, uh, in our species, but something that is ultimately as unnatural as anything else that, that, that you might name about our lived experience. We are being toward death. We are trying to work it out. And in the process of working it out, many of us have chosen to attempt in some way to reconcile ourselves to death, to um, become comfortable with it. And I think that we should, we should not be in that place. I think that we should alienate ourselves at, at the psychological level, at the, um, at the, essentially at the rational level again. Even knowing that it's 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 coming for us, uh, that that doesn't mean we have to uh, we have to accept it. Consider um, Rakow's chapter now. Here is um, chapter six from her from her book, uh, chapter six, titled "Mary Loving Kindness." As we continue um, our first movement on death, Rakow says, uh, "This is this is her entire chapter, um, short but." Uh, but moving when she held Jesus on her knee and he reached his arm around her neck, Mary felt flooded with melancholy. She could not account for a profound foreknowledge of sorrow for which she had no empirical evidence. She saw that what she'd given her son by giving him her body was suffering. And she grieved not only for herself, her son and her husband, but for all of creation, the cat outside, the cucumber sliced in the bowl, the great fish in the sea, vulture and crow, for every person, for lovers, for every child born and yet to come, grieved for the entire world and all its soiled history and crippled future because suffering was an inalienable element of the world's order and because it was incurable. From that day on, she resolved to pray hourly for all of creation, the reptiles and insects, the flowers and birds, for those she loved and those she did not love. In time, a startling vision came to her that was unlike anything she'd ever seen with her eyes. Two hands very near each other, hers and her son's, and she could not reach him. The vision came often, so she began to pray for those who would hurt her, who would hurt her son, and for the enemies of truth. Eventually, she was able to pray that her son's enemies, sure that he would have them, would also be preserved and shown mercy. She prepared herself, and she would also prepare him. What is the price of salvation? She asked Jesus as he grew until one day he answered, Death. And she said, Yes. Eastern iconography 
always has the, I say always, to my knowledge, Eastern iconography uh, consistently has the infant Jesus wrapped in swaddling clothes that look like bandages. Jesus in a cradle that looks like a tomb. It is the reason that thoughtful, um, it's, it's understandable. It's the reason that, that, um, many struggle with the very idea of, of having children. For example, the idea that we would bring, um, life into a world where these alien forces, the force of death, the inescapable agent of death will eventually arrive, um, will eventually arrive in the life of, of that son or daughter. And no doubt many of you have thought, thought about this, um, um, it's no doubt occupied some of your, some of your, um, attention. Jesus wrapped in swaddling clothes, an infant wrapped, wrapped in bandages, an infant in a cradle, like a tomb. We are, we are in this ongoing process. We are being toward death. We're trying to work out what it is to be human and to live while at once, while at once facing death, is Rakao correct? It is suffering an inalienable part of the world's order. I mean, it's ubiquitous. It's like a knife, but is it incurable? All of religion, the sacrificial systems that exist across religions, and again, I want to credit Hart's uh, first part of Hart's lecture here at their very core, are an attempt to orient ourselves into the natural cycle of death. It isn't our desire to escape death in these moments, in the moments of the, the sacrifices that we see in the ancient world, but, but the ancient and ongoing mechanism by which we cope with death, and that's where the sacrificial system becomes very interesting. Indeed, we bring a death to God, we bring blood to God, in the ancient world anyway, this sacrificial system um, offers something that was living, brings blood, and it puts us near death while, while happily maintaining our own, our own um, state of being alive. It brings us near death, and in some way, momentarily, we feel uh, reconciled to it. We're existing within the system of life and death, the payment of death as a mechanism by which we can go on living. It, it certainly is a coping mechanism. It certainly functions at the psychological level, and you need only read um, the Hebrew Bible to see that. It is, it, and it is also ongoing now. We, we are constantly, we are not sacrificing the blood of animals, but we're sacrificing our own sweat and blood in many ways, even now, to distract ourselves from to reconcile ourselves to, without really trying to escape from, but to come to terms with death. And one of the many ways, at least in American culture, that we come to terms with death is by distracting ourselves from it as much as we possibly can for as long as we possibly can. And that might be 50 or 60 years. It is an ongoing project. 
Don't think about death. Don't experience suffering because suffering is um, at least, if not only, in part um, an indicator that there's an ultimate suffering that is coming, one that we cannot have victory over. The binding of Isaac, think about Genesis chapter 22 and its implications for the sacrificial system uh, that we read about later in, in, the, in the Torah. The unquestioning and suffering Abraham, by the way, very fascinating that this is the Abraham who was bartering with God, who was wheeling and dealing with God to save a city. If there are 10 righteous people, if there are nine righteous people, it's this Abraham who, when it comes to the sacrifice of his own son, seems to not utter a word. Abraham is familiar with the kinds of sacrifices that were um, that, that he grew up with, the kinds of sacrifices that were um, a part of the custom and culture of his homeland, the kind of God that would ask for something as dear and as precious as his own son. This kind of God, a God that would demand that kind of sacrifice, might be very, very familiar to Abraham. And he, whatever was going on internally in the mind of Abraham, is seems to be willing to engage in that sacrificial system. The unquestioning and suffering Abraham is given a glimpse of hope. As he is told, his reconciliation to the sacrificial system is unnecessary, that the gods that were familiar to him do not look like um, the God of the Hebrew Bible, Yahweh of the New Testament. Isaac is spared, and we are given hope in this story that the economy of death may not include us in the way that we once thought it did. We're given a truly alien hope, and that's the thrust, the point of this first movement. And it's, big, it's truly one of the hardest hopes that I've um, had to sustain in my own life. And I think if we're honest, it's, it's, this, it's uh, arguably one of the hardest hopes for any of us to, to grasp onto. It's a hope that more awaits us. On, yes, on the other side of death, but also within this life, there is a way of living that sees something else happening in the death moment that promises hope and the fullness of life. Not only in spite of death, but in fact, through it. Uh, and, and in fact, a hope that, that, that overcomes death. But the cross will actually never carry the meaning um, that it's meant to carry, the meaning that it could potentially carry if we remain convinced that death is just a part of things and it always will be a part of things and that it's simply how the world works. If you're hearing this and you've grown up in religious communities, if you're hearing this and you've grown up in, um, in churches and, and you spent your life in a church, you're saying, and, and believe those things, you're saying, yes, I know that already. I'm, I'm trying to bridge a gap between what we affirm intellectually, what we know in the sense that we, you know, we might pronounce it as true, and something much deeper, which, which, which includes the intellect, which includes the rational mind, but wraps up all of our lived experience, something more qualitative, um, something certainly more subjective, um, this, 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 um, this, as, as Boltman talks about this subjective experience of, of, 
of, of Christ, of Christianity, of the cross, this idea that it's not enough to know in some kind of intellectual way that, that maybe uh, there's something on the other side of death that maybe and hopefully and you're, you're, you're in with the idea that being close to Christ will, will allow you to eventually overcome death. But to actually embody this takes meditation and the cross won't, won't carry even a fraction of the significance that it might unless you first begin with this fundamental question, is death is death inseparable from the human experience? Will it always be a part of the universe? Is death something that is, is death something that was supposed to be for us? How should we think about and experience death? And so with those kinds of questions reiterated, uh, movement two is the cross. And um, this statement, a a direct quote from Hart. Christ proves the cosmos wrong. Christ proves the cosmos wrong. Here's John 16, uh, verses 5 through 14. But now I am going to him who sent me. And none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you no longer see me. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world also, uh, uh, literally, because the archon of the age is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority. but Whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me. For he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. The cross, for movement two, the cross is Christ proving the cosmos wrong. Here's heart directly. The cross, even understood through a pagan lens, which is to say, by the way, which is to say through a non-Judeo-Christian lens. We're talking about a first century um, Roman, for example. The cross, even understood through a pagan lens, is a kind of sacrifice. Now, Hart is not the first or only person to say this, not by, um, not by a long shot, but it's, a, it's an important point. Specifically, going on, if two soldiers in the Roman Empire were sentenced to death by Octavius, for example... This preservation of the socio-political order, which is at once a preservation of the sacred order, would also be a religious sacrifice to Mars, god of war. This is all about the sacred order of the gods. And this is where Hart's insight, again, echoed by many scholars, is critically important. And I think something that is sometimes lost on, um, on Christians um, you know, in, in, in our time, right, in our place and time. In the ancient world, the, the, the execution, we're speaking outside of 
um, Judeo-Christianity for the, for the moment, the execution of a Roman guard, say, because maybe, because that guard was, you know, whatever the reason, um, the execution of a Roman soldier by, um, by his superior, that execution preserves a social order. We have that kind of thing now, don't we? If the, there are certain things that if we do, we can anticipate certain consequences and those actions preserve a social order. They also preserve the, 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 the Roman, um, the Roman guard, the Roman soldier being executed by uh, his superior officer. That also preserves a political order because you have to have, it seems, um, these kinds of, you have to be willing to do damage to an individual. You have to be willing to sacrifice an individual to make sure that the power structures and hierarchies that you want to preserve are sustained. But the interesting feature here is that this was also a religious act. It preserves in the ancient world a sacred order because the social and the political and the familial and the sacred in the ancient world, more so than now, were all wrapped together. Crossan offers this um, much insight on these kinds of topics. In this case, sacrifice, the sacrifice of the particular, and, and, and again, Hart echoes this in his lecture as well, the sacrifice for the particular is for the sake of the universal. The small, the insignificant for the sake of the whole. The individual may die to satisfy the gods and will do so to make sure the divine economy, quoting Hart, the universe remains exactly as it should be. Here's where I think Crossan is so insightful, but stops short. Because a willingness to sacrifice a particular individual to preserve a hierarchy in society is something we are, we are quite familiar with um, in our culture now. We are all too willing to do that exact kind of thing. Um, and we see this in our politics. It runs rampant in our politics. But, it, but when, Jesus, when Jesus proves the cosmos wrong, he's not merely, he is certainly rejecting the sociopolitical order of the day, but he's not merely rejecting that. Look back at John chapter 16. Jesus is proving the whole of the cosmos wrong, which is all of the material world and all of the a all, all of the um, ah material world that that undergirds it. And this is where I think it's really a shame, actually, that so many religious people and, and you know we don't have to even speak specifically about Christianity for the moment. Um, I, I don't know what percentage of, of people in, say, America would answer that they believe in a higher power or believe in a god or a deity, but I imagine that it would be well over half that might say, um, however uncommitted they might be or, in, or, or whatever, they might still to some degree mean that mean it when they say, yeah, there might be more out there. In fact, probably there is. There's this, it's very interesting that we are willing to believe, um, we are willing to give lip service to a tr uh, the idea of an amaterial ah, transcendent being, 
But when it comes to addressing, when it comes to thinking about a divine economy that is more complex than merely, and this includes Christianity as well, most, I, I really think that most, um, many um, religious people see it, see it in the following way. There's God, this amaterial spiritual being, there's God, there may be some angels, but let's not think about that because it's weird and very confusing. And then there's all of the material world, and we, we hope to end up, uh, and, and maybe hell too, and we hope to end up with God and, and not the other. And that's, that is, that is um, essentially um, the way that um, we think about divine economy or the divine realm or the amaterial. Um, well, I mean, the ancient world had a far more interesting and robust picture of of the th- of things unseen, and it strikes me as unusual that uh, at a, at a cultural level, many people would be happy to affirm something about a higher power, but anything else strikes them as um, as strange superstition. And I would I would say that if you affirm one, you probably affirm more than that. Um, and and why is this relevant? It's relevant because anyone who's, for example, worked in any kind of public service knows that even when everyone on that, uh, on your team, whether you are, whatever sort of kind of public service you're in, even when you see society operating at its best, everyone on the team is killing it. Everybody is highly competent. Everybody has the right motives and ethos. Even when all of those things are aligned and you see the, um, the inability of our best systems to address the greatest and most disturbing evils in our world. You can't help but at once arguably become exhausted, but also recognize, is there something else below this? Is there something more to what's wrong with society than, than merely like a substandard program or a bad law or a lack of policy? All of those things are good and need to be addressed but is it, isn't it possible that when you see evil, when you see injustice, there's more evil and more injustice that sits below it? On the cross, Christ proves the cosmos wrong. The Christian understanding of the cross reflects the Jewish understanding of sacrifice. Please follow this because it, it's essential as we are attempting to tie everything together in the third movement, the Christian understanding of the cross reflects the Jewish understanding of sacrifice. The one that has been presented throughout the, all of the Bible, korban, a derivative of, uh, of karev, this means to come closer or to draw near. This is very different than a sacrifice that allows us to be a part of the life, death, life death cycle engaging in our own kind of like taking life so that we so that we present death this is a very different thing the the deeper understanding of sacrifices is actually a drawing near and it's here i want to highlight that i affirm the abstract concepts of of the victory of christ christus victor um this is god bringing all things it's god reaching through death and bringing all things back to God. And to tie it back to what I was saying just a moment ago, this includes Christ's victory. This is, this is John 16. This includes Christ's victory over the powers 
both seen and unseen in the whole universe. When, when we're talking about the cosmos, we're talking about all of the created order, all of, all of the uh, material world, but everything else too. Christ is putting the victory of Christ is Christ reaching through all of that to bring everything back into biblical order. This is one of the reasons I can also fully affirm, and we won't take the time now, the Trinitarian picture of substitutionary sacrifice. Remember that the, the, the caricatures um, that, that, that uh, cause us to kind of jettison or, or reject substitutionary atonement often have to do with the idea that God is angry. Um, of course, God does hate sin. God is wrathful toward injustice and sin. But the idea that God is angry, he throws a punch. Uh, Jesus steps in the way, humanity, uh, and, and, and is damaged, but, but ultimately gets up on the third day and humanity runs along. Like, this is not a serious consideration of substitutionary atonement. And if you want, if you want to think clear-headedly about substitutionary atonement, you must think clear-headedly about the nature of the Trinity. Christ is on the cross, but remember that God is on the cross. One will one essence. It's God paying, and not, not all payments go to someone. Uh, we, we think that they do because we live in a capitalist, consumerist culture where if you're paying someone, if you're making a payment, it's going somewhere. Not all payments go to someone. If you're training for an ultra marathon, as I've said in, uh, in our gatherings, I hate all analogies um, uh, to, try to, to try to begin to explain this. And so, Yet here I am giving one. But if you're, if you're training for an ultra marathon and you say you pay a high cost, no one asks to whom, right? Like no one says that. Everyone understands what you mean. You're paying a price for the thing that you're doing. And the Trinitarian God pays a price, pays a price by entering into humanity. This sacrifice, which no doubt is badly misunderstood exactly because of all the nudges that I, were, I was mentioning about dead and, and ledgers and so on. Images that Paul, by the way, uses, but are, I think are misapprehended now. This deeper sacrifice, this Trinitarian sacrifice, God, Christ, the Spirit, this act returns all that has been lost in death exactly because of sin. This is the victory of Christ. This is substitutionary atonement. It is, it is a cost that is paid so that we don't ultimately have to pay that cost. And it's the cosmos being put back together, not only what we see in the material, but all that is created, which is everything other than God. The sacrifice God makes happens entirely under the active and dynamic willing and wanting of grace and mercy. It's actually this exciting, wonderful thing, uh, something that is strangely beautiful, represented through the grotesque. Uh, it's why any Christian message to be taken seriously has to hold together the crucifixion and the brutality of that and the resurrection and the glory of that. The cross should not be talked about without talking about sin and judgment. But all religions have judgment. All religions, all the major world religions, have some kind of divine judgment. And here's where I'll most uh, fully rely on 
um, on uh, Hart and Crossan uh, kind of respectively in this third movement where we, where I want to talk about the judgment of the empty tomb. The third movement is resurrection, the judgment of the empty tomb. A new age is inaugurated and a new cosmos has dawned in the judgment of the empty, of, of the cross and the empty tomb. Let's talk about judgment one. Uh, the judgment of the cross and the empty tomb is first a judgment on, as Hart says, the current social, political, and sacred order of the universe as we know it. There's a judgment. And the empty tomb is a judgment precisely because God enters in through death, in through suffering, and ultimately wears out, overcomes, defeats, you know, is, is, is a, probably an overused term and therefore it like loses its, 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 um, loses some of its meaning perhaps, but, but the cross of the empty tomb is a judgment on the current social, social, political and sacred order of the universe as we know it. It is a judgment on a death cult, which is happy to hang the lowest, weakest, most marginalized, most other among us to satisfy us and to keep the machines of the natural order running. And we, again, we do this now. We eat the people we need to eat to sustain ourselves in the current social structure. You know this is true. It is important to pause and note that a reduction of the crucifixion to a mere commentary on sociopolitical injustice, while, it, while that's essential, that reduction causes a picture of the crucifixion that is incomplete. Jesus, his contemporaries, the world of the first century, again, would have viewed the systems as both worldly and divine. Their metaphysic, way more interesting than ours. And the first judgment is a judgment, please catch this, the first judgment of the cross and empty tomb is a judgment on the natural order separated from God. It is a judgment on the natural order but not a judgment that doesn't bring redemption and ultimately reconciliation and healing. It's a judgment on what this world looks like. It's a, it's a judgment on the death cult. It's a judgment on this world without God, um, without God's fullness um, and power um, fully, fully, fully within it, which is to say the kingdom come. This is a promise that the world will be put back on a path to a future still unknown, on a restoration of the garden, yes, but on an eventual path to the new city, the new heavens, the new earth, uh, the new Jerusalem talked about in Revelation uh, chapter uh, 21, 22. And we'll be talking about that more actually in the next few weeks. Judgment two. The empty tomb reveals a judgment that brings something from outside of death, outside of the material world into the material order. This is being into non-being. What was trustworthy, the finality of death, the certitude of loss and separation, has been opened to the hope of life through death in the very middle of history. That's, you know, N.T. Wright talks about this um, as well as anyone I can name. The end of the movie has been rushed into the middle of the film. And that is the second judgment that as you are seeing the most horrifying and disturbing, the, the most anxiety-inducing and saddening 
pictures of death. The second judgment is, as Hart says, the horizon of the end of that age, the end of the death cult. The idea that there is a horizon that will eclipse this world as we know it, the material and the spiritual, and will put things back in order, a horizon that is an empty tomb. It is a judgment on the order of the world. It is a judgment on on the material and the, and the non-material world without God. And this judgment is actually one that brings hope because the judgment is an empty tomb. It is an evaluation of the power and the extent of um, and the impact of the natural order um, in, in its fallen nature. It's a judgment on that. And the judgment um, identifies that there, th- that world, the world separated from the fullness of Christ, only has so much power after all. The cross and the empty tomb hold these two judgments together by insisting the life of Christ in its fullness is the life we should have fidelity to over the rest of history, which is something that is an ideological commitment. Again, I, 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 to insist on this point, it's the idea that you, if you're someone who um, identifies as a follower of, of Christ, it's, it's the idea that you should have a deeper fidelity. You should have fidelity. You should have a deeper commitment to, a total fidelity to the life of Christ including the crucifixion, including the resurrection. And that commitment, that reality at a subjective level, at a qualitative or experiential level, that reality must be ultimate, must be deeper, must be, um, must inform how we look at all that is around us. And it must um, take priority over the way that we have understood history before, the way that we have understood nature before. And that leads to, um, finally, the Eucharist, because in, 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 in the Eucharist, in the Eucharist, we commit to these judgments, we commit to these truths, we hold these things in our mind at once. It's the experience of the material world, because we are still eating the flesh and drinking the blood. Um, you can imagine, some of you who are listening, um, a religious people, what a bizarre and disturbing image uh, I'm glad for it, strange. I'm glad that it's disturbing. It's meant to be that. We are still in a material world that loudly testifies to a history devoid of hope and healing, to a center which cannot hold, a world that is spiraling, into nothingness, into some kind of cosmic heat death. At once, we recognize that that is the world that we perceive and we choose instead to commit more fully to offer our fidelity to a horizon, a hope that, that peaks over that, that dismal horizon, a restoration to a new fullness that we acknowledge through communion. Well, we're at 47 minutes. Uh, I'll close um, with a reading, a poem from Henry Scott Holland. And I would encourage you, as you're hearing this, uh, as you're hearing this poem, 
to um, treat it as a prayer, to have in mind um, the people in your life um, that have that have died, those in your life that are gone. I would encourage you, if, if you're able, to hold in your mind um, your own anxieties about impending death and the sufferings associated with that. And, and then at, a qual- at an experiential level, allow the Spirit of God to open your heart. Just, just it, 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 it takes no work at all in grace and joy. Remember, this is the Easter message. This is an empty tomb. At once, allow your heart to remain open, even if, if, even if all you can manage is, is just essentially a crack in the door, in the doorway. Allow your heart to remain open uh, to hearing this poem as something that ultimately may be true about our cosmos. And you'll find, by the way, that that little sliver of hope actually is, is a seed that's, that's deeply planted. This is Henry Scott Holland, Death is Nothing at All. And it's meant to be received, um, I don't know, with seriousness, but also uh, with joy. Death is nothing at all. It does not count. I've only slipped away into the next room. Nothing has happened. Everything remains exactly as it was. I am I, and you are you. And the old life that we live so fondly together is untouched, unchanged, Whatever we were to each other, that we still are. Call me by the old familiar name. Speak of me in the easy way which you always used. Put no difference into your tone. Wear no forced air of solemnity or sorrow. Laugh as we always laughed at the little jokes that we always enjoyed together. Play, smile, think of me, pray for me. Let my name be ever the household word that it always was. Let it be spoken without an effort, without the ghost of a shadow upon it. Life means all that it ever meant. It is the same as it ever was. There is absolute and unbroken continuity. What is this death but a negligible accident? Why should I be out of mind because I am out of sight? I am but waiting for you for an interval, somewhere very near, just round the corner, all is well. Nothing is hurt. Nothing is lost. One brief moment, and all will be as it was before. How we shall laugh at the trouble of parting when we meet again. Blessing Center, we'll talk again next week. <laughs>